Thank you all again for being here and worshiping with us. Uh, if you have your Bibles, open up to Genesis 22. Genesis 22 is where we're going to be this morning. Um, if you're looking for Genesis, it's going to be the first book of the Bible. So open up that cover, flip to the first few introductory pages. You can go into Genesis. Uh, uh, chapter 22 is where we will be this morning. As you're turning there, I'd like to thank uh, everybody who came out for prayer and potluck last night. Um, everybody who brought dishes and uh, hung out and we, we prayed. It was a nice big group of us who got to gather together um, to fellowship and enjoy one another and to eat a lot of food uh, and lift up our voices in prayer uh, to God. So it was a great night. Thank you, everybody who came. I hope you come to the next one. Uh, it was a fantastic, delicious evening. So um, as I said, we're going to be in Genesis 22, and we are studying, we are studying uh, the God who provides. So we are in this My Name Is series, looking at the different names of God as he reveals himself to us and the character of God that he reveals along with those names. Uh, and so a few weeks ago, we talked about the name Yahweh. We talked about how, uh, in talking about the name Yahweh, talked about how God is reliable. He is exactly who we need, exactly when we need him. But in talking about that, it doesn't mean that he holds back any part of himself, that he is, he is always love, he is always grace, he is always mercy, and always omniscient, and always all of these things at once. But at different times in our lives, at different points in our lives, we might experience the different aspects of God differently to varying degrees based on us, based on our circumstances. And so, as I said, this morning we talk about, and we're going to look at, Jehovah Jireh. And so just like, was it last week where um, I, I preached on the God who heals, uh, and I was just coming off uh, of throwing out my back. This morning, is, it's just so timely that uh, we celebrate the fact that we have heat in the building uh, and we get to celebrate that and reflect on that and talk about Jehovah Jireh, um, the Lord who provides. And so since we're celebrating heat, I got a new cup this morning <laughs> to go along with our festive heatness. Um, maybe it's going to stay. Uh, the God who provides. Jehovah Jireh is, the word Jireh means to see and to act, literally to take action in what you are seeing. Our God acts. Our God is on the move. Our God is not stagnant or dormant. He is living and active. He shows up, and he shows up oftentimes when we least expect it or when we absolutely need it. When our backs are against the walls, God shows up and provides. And so this morning, as we look at Jehovah Jireh, we're going to look at the one time his name is used in this way in the Bible. It's one of the lesser known ones. It's only one time. It's here in Genesis 22. As we jump into it, before we do that, what I want to do this morning is we're going to start off a little bit different. As we talk about this God who provides, and we celebrate the fact that he provided us with the finances and with the heat and, and all of these things, um, I'm going to invite Leslie Rico to come up. Um, and she's going to share a little bit about, as we've walked through together as a community, what these last few months have been like. Um, she's going to share a little bit about how God has provided in her life. So, listen, I'm going to come up and grab Sarah's mic. Um, she's going to share a little bit. Can you guys hear me? There we go. All right, so we all know and are rejoicing that God provided for our church by having the heat. <laughs> But I'm going to share a story about how God provided for Daniel and I so that we could also contribute to um, having heat. So this is a cool story. Some of you in our small group have already heard it, but it's worth hearing again. So you all know that at the end of November, Pastor Tim announced at the members meeting that we needed to raise $30,000 for the HVAC unit, which was very intimidating and scary for many of us to hear, including Daniel and I. 
um, mostly because we were coming out of a season of just having a baby. I was going back to work um, part-time, which was actually costing us more money than if I wasn't working at all. So we had a lot of um, stretched finances at that point. Um, so we weren't sure how we were going to contribute to this large sum of money, but we knew that God was asking us to. So we were praying about it, and each of us independently through prayer were led dollars. That was like the number that God gave us. Um, so we didn't have this $1,000 living in our bank account, and we had no idea where it was going to come from. At that time, I was kind of like racking my brain. All right, God, like, what can I sell in our house? Like, what can I give away artwork? Like, how can I make this money? Which is funny now because God was like, you don't have to do any of that. Like, I'm just going to provide. Um, so, yes, he, prov he proved that to be unnecessary. Daniel and I were hesitant to give this money until we knew we'd have extra money to spare. Um, but God totally used this as an opportunity to teach us to trust him, even when the numbers in our bank account didn't make sense at all. So we trusted he would provide, but we also wanted to see it before we gave it. Um, so we had confidence he was going to deliver, but we really had no idea like where this money was going to come from. So after praying for a couple of weeks, um, my boss at work called me into her office, and she sat me down, and she was like, I, she literally said that she was like, I don't know who you've been talking to up there. Also, side note, my boss is a Jewish woman. Um, she said, I don't know who you've been talking to up there, but this random thing happened, and I have to give you a raise. And I was just like, what? This is crazy. She's like, this isn't just a small raise. But she's like, I have to give you, so there was a law that passed in December that basically stated that any part-time, master's degree level, salaried employee working for like a nonprofit organization had to be paid a minimum amount, salaried amount per year. And I was making $6,000 less than that amount. Um, so we both sat there perplexed, and I just like was filled with like awe and shock because I knew it wasn't a random thing. I knew it was God's answer to prayer in this completely random, the last place we would have expected it to come from. So it was also really a blessing because God used that as an opportunity for me to share with her what was going on at church. I was able to tell her um, about how Daniel had been praying and how we'd been praying really specifically and how this was not only what we asked for, but like so much more. And she was just like in awe of that and has like mentioned it several times. So I think it's really sitting with her. Um, so I, out of, I think our organization has like three to 500 people if you count like different locations. I was literally the only person in our organization that that law affected. Um, so there is truly no explanation to this except for God was answering prayer. Um, he, he didn't provide us just with $1,000, but he provided us with six times as much, which was clear that he was really entrusting us with not just that money, but money that's going to keep coming. Like, okay, we're going to challenge you. What are you going to do with this money that I have given you? Um, so Daniel nor I could take any credit for this at all. It wasn't something we did to earn this money. It wasn't anything on our behalf, but it was truly God's great gift to just putting it in our lap, saying, this is mine, and I'm going to give it to you so you can continue to, to give it. So we 
definitely learned from that experience to trust him and to trust him when it doesn't seem to make sense. Um, and I think God really grew us through that opportunity and has been able to bless us to be able to be generous too. So we're very thankful. Amen. Thank you, Leslie. Um, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord provides. Uh, let's pray, and then we're going to jump into Genesis 22. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the uh, so many ways you provide, so many ways you show up, so many times you show up, and you bless us, and you show how big and how awesome and how powerful you are. God, help us to not forget that. Help us to not lose sight of that. Help us to not be distracted by the gifts you give, but to be focused on you, the giver, you, the one who provides, you, the one we can trust and rely on. God, as I preach this morning, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. We're going in Genesis 22, starting in verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had been. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took it in his hand, the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the, Lord, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withhold your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. The Lord provides. We see in verse 1, it says, after these things, God tested Abraham. God is in control of all things, which means that all things that happen, all tests, all trials, all hardships, must that anything that we must endure is being allowed by God. Anything you encounter, you endure, God knew you were going to have to deal with it. God is watching. God is paying attention. God is involved in it. You are not alone in any of it. All tests, in essence, come from God, or they are at least allowed by him. That means that all tests, everything that we walk through, have a purpose. To test, the word to test literally is to prove the quality of, to reveal the strength of something, to identify and be able to remove the iniquity. 
The phrase that's commonly thrown around in churches is the refiner's fire, where you would take gold and you would put it into an extremely hot fire. It would burn off the imperfections, the impurities, leaving you with the purest, strongest gold, the purest, strongest metal. That is to test. Testing comes from God, but it comes from God with a purpose, a purpose to grow us, to strengthen us, to reveal to us something about who God is. Everything we walk through has a purpose. God calls to Abraham, and Abraham responds, here I am. Are you connected enough to God and the voice of God to hear him when he calls? God calls to Abraham to send him into a test that will ultimately be for Abraham's good and God's glory, but none of that's going to happen if Abraham ignores God's call. Are you paying attention enough? Are you getting quiet enough? Are you listening enough? Are you in connection with God's voice enough in his word to be able to hear when he's speaking? Again, as we walk into this season of Lent, this is a great season, a great time for that. It's a season that says, slow down. Pay attention. God is perpetually calling us to himself, showing us himself, revealing himself to us. Lent gives us a chance to slow down and listen to the call that God has for us. We see Abraham respond to God, and God, in verse 2, gives him a test of biblical proportions. In verse 2, he tells him, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. There are conflicts upon conflicts in this command from God. You have the moral conflict. The fact that God told Abraham to kill his son He clearly isn't being metaphorical because Abraham treats this as a literal command and at no point does God stop him or direct him otherwise. The same God who is completely good and righteous and holy and pure and moral tells Abraham to sacrifice his son. The same God who hates sin, hates murder, commands Abraham to kill his son. Now we know that God was never going to let this happen but it doesn't change the instruction. And for many, this is perplexing at best, but for most, it's gross and uncomfortable and messy. Sometimes God is going to press on the places in our lives that we are most susceptible to idolatry. For Abraham, really, when you strip this down, he was being given a choice between Isaac and God. The gift and the gift giver. Isaac was promised, and Abraham waited for generation upon generation, for decades and decades for Isaac to show up. He finally does. And now God is trying to say, give him back to me. See, many of us ask God for things. We ask for God to step in. We ask for God to provide. We ask for God to show up, to get involved. And sometimes we can get so caught up in the result of God's provision that we forget about him. We forget about worshiping him. We forget about making much of him, and he becomes secondary. The gifts oftentimes will supersede the giver if we aren't careful and intentional. That's why I love Leslie's story, saying that she had nothing to do with it. It couldn't have been anything other than God's provision to keep her focused on who it was that provided for them. So we have the moral conflict. You also have the covenant conflict happening here because if you flip back and you go to Genesis 17, 21, you don't have to, it'll be on the screen. God tells Abraham, I will establish my covenant with 
Isaac. Isaac is the key to the covenant promise God made to Abraham. He told Abraham, I'm going to give you land, I'm going to make you a blessing, and I'm going to give you descendants. Descendants as many as the stars in the sky and the sand in the beach. Generation upon generation upon generation, Abraham. But how is that going to happen if Isaac is dead? Because what that means is that if Isaac is the one who is the promise is going to go through, that means Isaac not only has to live, but he's got to live long enough to get married and have a, have a descendant, have a kid himself. God's got to keep Isaac alive until at least he becomes a dad. To kill Isaac is to either make God a liar or to prove he isn't actually in control of all things. If he kills Isaac now, the covenant promise is dead and gone. Then we have the emotional conflict. Take your son, Isaac, whom you love. Take your beloved. Take your very heartbeat, your joy, your delight, the one you have longed and waited for. Take Isaac. Isaac, the name means laughter. Abraham, take your laughter and kill it. Notice in this story, We don't have any details of Abraham having a conversation with Sarah. Because how does that conversation go? Hey, honey, me and Isaac are going to take a walk for a few days, and I'm going to kill him. Think about the heartbreak. Think about the wrecked relationship between Abraham and Sarah. God tests us in the spots where sometimes it hurts See, trials in this life are unavoidable. If you are breathing, you are either in the midst of a trial, you just came out of a trial, or, good news, you're about to head into one. That is this life. And oftentimes, those trials, those tests, are centered around the places in our lives that are, for us, soft spots, weak spots. The places we are most protective of, the places where we hold on tightest and we don't let go of, and we say, I'm not trusting anybody else with this. I'm in control of this. See, God knows those places. He sees those places in your heart, and he has a divine plan to loosen your grip and show you not only your weakness and sin, but his goodness and his strength, if you will trust him. In the midst of this devastatingly hard trial, how does Abraham respond? We see him respond in verse 3 with intentional faith. It says he got up early the next day. No dragging his feet. No, it's on the to-do list. I'll get to it eventually. No excuses. He got up to pursue this hard trial. And we see the details of his preparedness. He wasn't doing this halfway. He was all in. So he makes sure he has everything he needs. He's got a donkey to help carry stuff. He gets a couple of his servants to help carry the load. He checks off every detail because he's invested in this. My sophomore year of college, I transferred schools. Um, And the night before it was move-in day, it was orientation day, um, I was still in the midst of packing, kind of. Um, You know, it was the end of summer, so that was a bummer. I was going to a new school. I didn't know anybody. I wasn't super excited about having to make new friends. I had met my roommate, and I wasn't all that excited about that relationship. I just really wasn't excited or looking forward to it all that much. And so I was kind of dragging my feet on packing. And at one point, uh, my dad, uh, the night before, came 
downstairs and, and said, hey, are you done? Do you got everything you need? And he's like just rattling off things. And I was like, yeah, I got it. I got it. It'll be fine. Not a big deal. I also was going to school like an hour away. So I was like, really, worst case, I forget something. I can always come back. Not a big deal. So next morning comes, and we go, and we go through all the orientation stuff, and we meet all the kinds of the people, and we start moving the stuff in. We build the loft in my room, and I'm starting to unpack things, and I'm looking around my room into these boxes and bags, and I'm realizing that I didn't bring a blanket, a sheet, a pillow, nothing to sleep with. I had zero plan for what I was going to do there. Because I wasn't invested. I didn't really put all that much detail or planning into it. I was hesitant and nervous about the situation, so I wasn't really fully invested. Abraham here is invested. He has intentional faith, and he is going to make sure he has every detail ready to go. He goes early in the morning, and he looks over everything. He looks over all the details. He gets everything ready. You know what we don't see? We don't see Abraham arguing, debating, or trying to negotiate with God. While he might not understand the why, he is trusting God, which is actually kind of new for Abraham. Because if you read through Genesis and you read the story of the life of Abraham, faith in God and trusting God is not usually his strong point. Two different times, Abraham lies about his wife Sarah being his sister so that he doesn't get in trouble. He ends up sleeping with his wife's servant to try and fulfill the promise of God to provide him a son on his own. Abraham is not, by all accounts, a model of faith for most of his life. But it is through these pitfalls and issues that he has grown. He has learned and matured and gotten himself ready for right now. The things you go through day to day, the trials and tests and experiences that you are going through now are preparing you for who you're going to be tomorrow who you're going to be next year, who you're going to be 5, 7, 10, 15 years down the road. God has been getting Abraham ready for this moment for years. And so they go on this trip we see in verse 4. It takes them three days to get to the area God told them about. And I'm sure that over those three days, I'm sure Abraham was hoping that he was going to turn a corner and there was going to be no Mount Moriah. I'm sure he was hoping this was all a big misunderstanding. But it says after three days, he sees the place from afar. And then he keeps going. Though I'm sure every step he got closer was more and more painful, he continued. He pressed on through the hardness of life. Until finally we get to verse 5. It says, Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Couple of observations there. Look how he refers to Isaac. I am the boy. He doesn't even say Isaac's name, probably out of heartbreak. He couldn't even bring himself to say his son's name. But at the very same time, what does he say to the servants? He says, You guys stay here. I and the boy will go over and worship and come back again to you. The ESV doesn't give you the we, but come back again to you is we will come back to you. It's plural. We're coming back to you. Now, does he say that to try and just lie to Isaac? No. Abraham believed they were both coming back from this. And we know this through reading our Bibles. See, the Bible interprets the Bible. Hebrews 11 
the great hall of faith, where it talks about how all of these different people who we hold up as the pillars of faith and how they responded to God by faith. Hebrews eleven seventeen says this, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who has received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham didn't have built into him. He didn't grow up in church knowing about resurrection theory. The idea of coming back from the dead was a foreign, completely set-apart concept for him. But he knew who God was. He knew God keeps his promises. He had experienced enough of God that in his heart he believed that even if he did have to go through with this, even if he did have to kill Isaac, one way or the other, God's bringing him back. One way or the other, they're both coming back to these servants. Abraham knew what God had told him to do seemed ridiculous, seemed counter to everything by common sense standards, by every human standard, it seemed wrong. And in the midst of his confusion, in the midst of his sadness and pain, Abraham went to worship. In the midst of your pain, confusion, frustrations, trials and tests, that's the best time to show up and worship. Abraham trusted that the same God who gave him Isaac, when Abraham and Sarah were well past the age of being new parents, that God could, if he needed to, bring Isaac back from the dead. It is in the midst of what seems to be an overwhelming trial, too big, too hard, too much, it is in those situations that God will often step in to reveal himself to you, to show you and remind you that he is bigger, better, greater, and grander than anything this world has to throw at you. I know I've talked a lot about it. We needed $30,000. We have an operating budget of $84,000. And God said, I got you. Just trust me. And I know Leslie's story and Daniel's story is not the only one of people who were faithful to step in, to give generously during that time, and God showed up, and God provided, and God made himself known. In the times where it seems overwhelming, where it seems like there is no human way we're getting out of this one, that's where God steps in and shows just how big and powerful he is. Just because something seems impossible, seems unrealistic by human standards, it doesn't mean we walk away. Don't walk away. If God has called you into something, keep going. Keep pressing on because he's got something of himself to show you, and I promise you, you don't want to miss what he's got for you. And so they keep going. We see in verse 6, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac, took in his hand the fire and the knife, and they went them together. He put the wood on Isaac. He had Isaac carry it. Just briefly, they've been traveling for three days, and they've been traveling for three days with a donkey and two servants because they needed all the extra help. This was a hard hike. This was not a leisurely stroll to the park on a delightful Sunday afternoon. This was a tough hike. And the fact that Isaac is grown enough to carry the wood up a mountainside means he's older. I know oftentimes in this story it's depicted that Isaac is just a little kid. 
We don't have a definite age of how old Isaac is here, but many scholars believe he's anywhere from 15 to 25. And I bring that up, and then just hold on to that, because we're going to come back to that in a second. But Isaac is carrying the wood up this mountainside, and together the two of them set out, just as they had done previously, to go and worship God together. Clearly they had done this before, because Isaac takes inventory of the situation. He looks and he says, okay, we got wood, we got fire, we got a knife, but he realizes something is missing. And he says in verse 7, Dad, where's the lamb? Where's the lamb for the offering? Where's the actual sacrifice, Dad? And Abraham responds in verse 8, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Isaac, God's going to handle this one. Isaac, God is in control. God is at work. God is doing something. God is on the move. God is paying attention. God knows what we need and will provide it. And so, father and son, they go just as they, as they had in the past to worship. And that's where Jehovah Jireh shows up. It says in verse 9 that Abraham, they get to the spot that God tells him to and they stop. Abraham builds an altar, bound up his son Isaac, and lays him on the altar. Isaac was born, Abraham was 100 years old. So even on the lowest estimate of what Isaac, how old Isaac was, he's 15. You're going to tell me that Abraham at 115 was able to grab, subdue, hogtie his son if his son resisted? a son who is strong enough to carry the wood needed to build this altar up a mountain. Benji's two and a half. I can barely get his PJs on when he doesn't want to go to bed. Isaac willingly allows his father to tie him up and lay him on this altar. Isaac trusted his dad, who in turn trusted God. Isaac trusted in the faith of his dad and the object of the faith of that faith in God. Parents, your kids are always watching. They are always paying attention. They are always listening. They see how we live out our faith. They see how real or not real our faith is Monday through Saturday. The greatest thing we can do for our kids is to be a light for them to point them to God. To live in a way to show them how in the way we live, in the way we worship, in the way we raise them, to show them how important our faith is not only to us personally, but us as a family. We are teaching our kids about God. The most important thing you can do for your kids is to teach your kids that God made them, God knows them, and God loves them so much he sent his son to die for them. Isaac willingly lets himself be tied up and placed on this altar. Now what is going through Abraham's mind? We know what's in his heart. But he takes this knife and he extends his hand to slaughter his son. That's some Old Testament biblical language. Slaughter his son. Abraham believed that no matter what was going to go down here, his son was going to come back to him. But that does not negate the pain that must have been in his heart. Can you picture him? This old man pulls out his old knife, holds it over his son tied up on this altar. The heavy breathing, fighting back tears, trying to muster the strength to do it. 
When I take Benji to the doctor, when he's got to get a shot, I got to help him. He gets a shot in the leg. I got to help hold him down because he is not a fan. And it breaks my heart. He's screaming and thrilling. I know when Benji gets a shot, it's for his health. It's going to make him stronger. It's going to help him fight off, fight off infection. I know it's good for him, and it still breaks my heart to have to hold him down as he's screaming in pain. Can you imagine what's going through Abraham's heart, what's going through Abraham's mind? I don't have the brain space to put myself where Abraham was. The dad in him must have been screaming within himself. And just as he is about to slaughter his son, when he has fully committed to the act, Jehovah Jireh steps in. We see in verse 11, God again calls to Abraham, and Abraham again is able to listen and respond even in the midst of the most intense, confusing, heartbreaking of times, Abraham was dialed in to hear and respond to the voice of God. How do we get dialed in like that? Be in his word. Be in prayer. Be in community. Be still. Be intentional with your faith. And so we see God speak in verse 12. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy, Or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. God speaks and tells Abraham, don't kill the boy. Abraham, don't kill Isaac. Because that boy is the boy of promise. That's the one from whom descendant upon descendant upon descendant is going to come. Because from Isaac... He's going to have a son named Jacob, and Jacob's going to have a lot of kids. Specifically, he's going to have 12 boys. And from him, they will have many, many children. There will be prophets and priests and kings. In fact, the greatest king Israel will ever know comes through this line. Generation after generation is going to come after Isaac. And they're not all going to be great. That family tree is messy and got some cracked and bent branches. There will be liars and cheaters and murderers. There's even going to be some non-Jewish people that make it in. But Abraham, from this boy, is going to come a descendant one day who's going to be born to a nobody teenage girl from the middle of nowhere. And he is going to save his people. He is going to bring life and hope and a restoration that was where there was once only brokenness and death and sin. Jesus is going to step in and bring healing and hope and restoration. Abraham, do not kill this boy because I promised you many descendants. And Isaac is going to fulfill that promise. Now we see in verse 12, God says, Now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son. Does that mean God didn't know before? Is there something God doesn't know? No, of course God knew. God knows everything. The church word for that is God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. There are no surprises to God. He has eternally existed, and he is outside of time. So yesterday, today, tomorrow, all of that is like the same for him. There is nothing he doesn't know. You will never make a decision in your life, and God is going to go, I did not see that coming. I am on the edge of my seat. He knew in eternity past how this was going to play out, and he knows the heart and mind of Abraham. He knows how Abraham feels and believes. David in Psalm 139 asked God to search his heart and know him. God doesn't need to search David's heart to know him. God already knows him. But for us as humans, as we try to contemplate and understand who God is, we oftentimes put our own thoughts and feelings and and beliefs onto trying to put 
some understanding of God, and we as humans place a high value on experiential knowledge. God says, now I know that you fear him. What he's saying is, Abraham, now your faith has been actualized. It's one thing to talk. It's one thing to hold that faith in your heart, to actually believe, but then to put feet to the fire, to put your feet to the ground and actually walk out your faith. Your faith, finally, Abraham, has been experienced. God is actually saying to Abraham, your response here, Abraham, is exactly what the original design and desire was. That man would trust and rely fully and completely on God for all things, trusting with no hesitation in the Creator. See, God is always on time. Though we may be sweating out the details and watching the clock, God is always on time. We see Abraham look up in verse 13. Abraham looks up, and over in the bushes behind him was a ram, apparently the quietest ram that has ever existed. He didn't make any noise when he was stuck. Abraham takes the ram, offers him as a burnt offering instead of his son. God is always right on time, never early, never late, never rushed. God provided that ram right on time, not before Abraham had the chance to live out his faith, not before he put his faith to action, right on time. Verse 14 says, It was out of the provision of God that Abraham names the place Jehovah-Jireh, the Lord will provide. Jehovah-Jireh is for us. Jireh, as we said earlier, as I said earlier, it means to see. It's literally to see and to take care of, to take action. It's because God sees that he can provide. God's vision led to his provision. He sees what we need, and because he sees it, he has the power to address it so that he can provide for us. That's our God, active always. He is the God who comes through every time, right on time, all of the time. He does not miss a moment. He does not skip a beat. He is the food for the hungry. He is the drink for the thirsty. He is the hope when we are in despair. He is the father to the fatherless. He will provide strength when you are weak, support when you are crumbling, direction when you are lost, peace when you are overwhelmed, life where there is death. Light where there is darkness, grace where there is judgment, forgiveness where there is condemnation. He is Jehovah Jireh, the Lord provides. And this is not blind faith, disconnected from reality, disconnected from anything else. This is faith in a God who has time and time again provided, showed up. This is faith in the God who parted the Red Sea, made the walls of Jericho come a-tumbling down, kept the sun standing in the sky, made it rain food from heaven, brought water from a stone in the desert, raised Lazarus from the dead, made the paralyzed walk, the blind see, the deaf hear, and the mute speak. This is the God who had compassion on a hungry crowd and fed 5,000 with just a couple of loaves and fish. The one who busted Peter and Paul out of jail. The one who rolled the stone back from the tomb, not to let Jesus out, but to let us in to show people that sin and death and hell have no claim on God, that if you have put your faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, there is life to be had, forgiveness to be had. God has been providing since the very beginning. It's who he is. He provides. In the midst of focusing on God's provision, I want you guys to remember two things as we leave this story. Number one, Abraham had to act. 
God told him, go somewhere, do something, listen and obey. The ram showed up only after Abraham obeyed, after Abraham took action. It's good to pray. We did it last night, and we prayed, and we lifted up concerns and wants and needs and desires. It's good to pray and ask God to get involved in our lives, but we can't just sit and wait. We can't just say, okay, well, I prayed. Now God's got to do something. Take action. We can't just sit and wait and then get mad that God didn't do anything. Get in the game. Make a move. Take a step. God is calling you to take action. God answers prayers. Amen and amen. Maybe not the way we always want. Maybe not the way we always think he should, but he does. He always provides what is best for us. Not necessarily what we ask for, but what we need. And he knows what we need better than we do. Can we actually trust that? Can we actually live into that? So number one, we are called to action. Number two, Abraham experienced the joy of Jehovah Jireh after experiencing the hardship, test, and trial. God puts you into a big, overwhelming, mind-bogglingly hard situation to reveal his awesomeness. C.S. Lewis once said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Folks, we're going to suffer. We're going to go through trials and hardships. We're going to be in the midst of hardships and trials, but it is ultimately for our good and for God's glory. And no matter what the trial, no matter what the situation, no matter how dark and scary it may be, Jehovah Jireh is at work. He will provide. As we talk about God's provision, about what we need, about God seeing what we need and stepping in, that's what he did for us for our behalf through Jesus. God told Abraham, take your son, your only son who you love, and give him as a sacrifice. God took his son, Jesus, his one and only son whom he loves, and he gave Jesus up as a sacrifice. Isaac carried the very wood he would be laid on up the mountainside, just as Jesus would carry his own cross on that same mountainside generations later. Only Jesus is actually killed. Jesus is actually given as that sacrifice for you and for me and for all of humanity that anyone who would admit their need for a Savior, anyone who would declare that Jesus is God and and declare their desire for Jesus to be their Lord will be saved. And that salvation is a gift, a gift of mercy and grace. It is Jehovah Jireh at work providing the most essential need that we have, a reconciled relationship with God, which leads to a hope and an eternity with God, a new life here and now in which we are called to live in light of the sacrifice God made and be a light in this world to point others toward him. Jesus is the beloved only son offered as a sacrifice by God, but he's also the ram. He's also the substitute for you and me. He dies in our place. He is the provision from God. He is the provision from the God who sees our need and provides for us in Jesus. Jehovah Jireh, always at work, always going to come through, never going to fail, never going to miss, never going to stop. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord, always provides. Let's pray. God, you are good. There is none like you. 
God, some of us are in the midst of trials. Some of us have just come out. Some of us are heading into them. God, whatever spot we are in, Lord, I pray that you would remind us of who you are. Remind us that you are the one who provides. Remind us that as we go through hardship, as we go through pain and sacrifice, Lord, we remind us that we do it not just because of chaos, but because you have a plan, that you are at work, that you are doing something, that you are teaching us, that you are showing us, that you are revealing yourself to us. God, I pray, Lord, as we walk through these trials, as we walk through these hardships, Lord, that you, Lord, we pray that we would focus on you, that we would remember that you provide, that we remember that you are bigger, better, greater, and grander than anything and everything this world can throw at us. Lord, help us to live in light of that belief, to truly walk out that faith, to be the lights you have called and made us to be, lights to point others toward you, to make much of you. God, we ask that you would give us the strength, endurance, boldness to walk with you. Lord, I pray that if anyone doesn't know you, if anyone hasn't put their faith and trust and hope in Jesus, in his sacrifice, in dying on the cross for our sins in our place, that right now in this moment, they would come to understand in the biggest, grandest way possible, you show that you are Jehovah Jireh, the one who will provide a right relationship with God. Lord, I ask that they would come to know you as Savior, as God, as Father, as friend. Lord, as we go into the world, let us never forget that you provide always. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen.